Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode 61. In this episode, we are talking about The Overstory by Richard Powers. I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Rich. Hey. Howdy, howdy. It has been, uh, it's been a little bit of time for you and I. It has, yeah, yeah, because this book was like a millstone around... <laughs> In particular, mine. Neck. <laughs> uh, mine too, and we—I <laughs> think we will talk about that exhaustively. I hope. <laughs> um, yeah, so we've got a we've got a big one today um, t- to go over. So, in the in the spirit of our sort of normal um, episode format, we will talk about the author. Um, Rich is going to reinstate the uh, the summary that we used to do. And uh, at the uh, at the request of my wife, who <laughs> doesn't read the books and is exactly the non-target audience for for the podcast. It's okay. So wait, um, wait, 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 wait. Time out. She's listening to our book podcast about books, where we go and we just get into the things and the themes that we want to, without ever reading it. Therefore, correct. she knows. Nothing and can sort of like lend nothing to the conversation in her head. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yep. I guess those people are out there. And too. and, and long time listener, long before <laughs> I was involved, listen is... to it all through um, the Jacob era. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. So we'll do the summary and then we'll then we'll get into our uh, we'll get into our uh, hopefully not as long as this book discussion about it, <laughs> and uh, and then we will. Decide where we're gonna throw it on a shelf or throw it in the bin, whatever, whatever it is we feel like. Definitely. Let's let's start with the uh, let's start with the Richard Powers bit first, and then I want to hear this this summary. Um, so Richard Powers was born. Uh, he's an American. Uh, he lives in uh, Illinois. He was born in 1957. Um, he lived in Bangkok for a bit as a child. His um, dad worked at a, an international school there. Um, he has a bachelor's and a master's from the University of Illinois, where my stepfather went as well. Um, he has written 12 novels. Um, a bunch of them have won awards, um, anything from the National Book Award um, to the Penn uh, Gene Stein Award, I think it's it's called. Um, and he he had a book in 2006 that was um, a finalist for the Pulitzer in fiction, um, but obviously didn't win. Uh, this book won the Pulitzer in 2019. And uh, from his photograph, he kind of looks like Stephen King a little bit, maybe a little bit like less, um, less experienced at life um, than Stephen <laughs> King looks at a glance. Uh to talk about Richard Powers without mentioning his haircut is a crime. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but yeah. it's I mean, it's glorious. It's the haircut of a man who's dedicated to writing books and not giving a fuck. Yeah, can, it, can I like make a short detour here about haircuts? Um, <laughs> I, I know, yeah, I know yeah, we're already going, the we're going let's off get the into this. But okay, he's got a terrible haircut. I live with a bunch of teenagers who um, have seemingly brought back the mullet. Um, Amazing. Yeah. And so I'm I'm really shocked at the number of teenagers um, that I encounter that just have what I consider to be really bad hair. (laughs) So I just want that to be known that like. I don't know. I just I just thought that some of these hairstyles were done in the you know 70s and 80s, and yet they are back. Somehow, it all comes back, doesn't it? It's all, it's uh, it's cyclical. It's it's really you can't get away from the mullet. The mullet is relentless. It's always going to be there. Yeah, I, you'll never catch me with a mullet, not unless I lost a serious bet. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like I'm always rocking like a half mullet. Like I could always become a mullet as my hair grows out. <laughs> Um, speaking of mullets, uh, I feel like this book was a little bit of a, a business in the front, party in the back. So maybe you can uh, <laughs> you can give us a summary of. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how you're going to do this, but I want I want to hear the summary, Rich. Oh yeah, sure. No, absolutely. The great news for Christina is that this is probably the most difficult book that I'll ever have to summarize. Oh, absolutely. So. 
I think the, the way to summarize it is that the, the book itself is broken up into the sections, uh, roots, trunk, crown, and seeds. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, the roots section is kind of like a short story section. Yep. Um, that then coalesces into the trunk, which is all those stories. Not all of the stories, but most of those stories coming together and those characters meeting. So there's nine characters. It's largely a story about human beings and trees and the impact that we have on one another and on world history um, and ecology. I also think, and I'd be interested because I I did read around a little bit and I've seen kind of different ideas about this, but to me it's quite a pessimistic and potentially misanthropic book. Um, um, so I'll be interested to get your read on that too. But that is as far as I'm going to go on the summary front, because to go any further would be incredibly difficult. Yes, um, that was a good summary. That was yeah, I. I, yeah, I couldn't yeah, have. I, I don't think I could have. Uh, I could have done it seriously. <laughs> I would have just come up with something silly. There are trees and there are people. All right. So let's. I don't even know where to to start with this really. Um, but maybe we can start with the structure a little bit, um, since you mentioned the the roots bit. Um, I think it's Definitely. it's interesting if you think about like um, all of these characters in the beginning being so separate um, in the sort of short story narrative style, um, yet they sort of grow together through the rest of this. Um, yes. But then you know, trunk and crown, whatever you know. You, make your allusions to plot arcs and so on and so forth. But then the, the seeds part um, I would like to talk about too, because the, that part of the book, the ending for most of the characters is very bleak. And I, I, I don't see uh, many things like taking seed or, you know, dropping seeds in that part. It felt very like final. Yeah. Yeah, I so I, I think that the roots part is really beautifully written and quite a lot of people that I saw online, you know, in, in Goodreads and places like that, like mm-hmm. not professional critics, were saying that this was the section that they enjoyed the most. Yeah. Um, and it seemed to be either you enjoy what came after roots or you enjoyed roots more. Right. Um because it would work beautifully as just a, a kind of lightly, thematically interlinked collection of short stories. Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, when I read the first one, uh, Nicholas Holt, yeah. uh, I kind of stepped away from the book for a little bit yeah, then. Because yeah. I was like, Jesus Christ, that's good. Yeah, And I I cannot stress how beautifully written the book is. It, it really is strikingly gorgeous. Um and I think those those setup stories are really, really interesting in the way that they build. When they start to coalesce in trunk, mm-hmm. um, although I still enjoyed the book and I enjoyed like the complexity of it, there's a couple of things that I found not even confusing, but I almost wonder as if there there's like a there's a slimmer book in there somewhere where the stories of uh, Ray and Dorothy and Neele yep. um, are not part of the whole. Right. Because it it's... I don't even know what I think. I mean, I, I love the Neele story in particular. Uh-huh. But I found... You know, there is a core story in there which is about these kind of eco-warriors slowly merging together yep. and, like working together to try and save trees and ultimately failing. Yep. Um, and the other stories seemed a little bit more tangential, specifically the Ray and Dorothy one. I thought that was really kind of... When, when those bits came up, I it's not I didn't want to read them. I was just like, oh, Christ, okay, we're off into a sort of uh, a cul-de-sac here Yeah. for the narrative. Um, how about yourself? Did you find that? Or? No, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I completely agreed and I found myself wondering like what the what the editor was thinking, you know, because hmm. if if I'm the editor in this situation, I look at those narratives and yes, they are beautiful um, and they are tragic in their in their own ways, similar to the, the rest of these these characters. But 
um, yeah, it did feel very much like a dead end. There, there wasn't anything that those three characters did to sort of move the main, you know, plot along. And yeah, I, I think if I were the editor, I would have just said, cut it, like make this, make this novel, you know, tighter, make it about the, the relationships between these totally unrelated people, um, you know, coming together in this extreme way and then, you know, sort of diverging again. Um, I think that, that whole plot arc um, with the remaining six or seven characters, whatever it was, um, would have made for a much more compelling storyline than having those those three other characters in there. And that was, I, I did the same thing. I was, every time one came up, I was like, oh, I don't want to hear Nile like wheeling around his office, programming a video game, like take me back to the trees, please. Or like, get him into the rest of it somehow. And I was so deeply disappointed that that never happened for those three characters. So I do think that, like, Nile's story, um, which is that of a uh, programmer trying to kind of create um, an imaginary world. I think, what, what are the worlds called? The games? There's Mastery, is that right? Uh, yeah, I think it was Mastery, yeah. Uh, anyway, so I do think that his arc, the particular meaning of that is that we can't create an alternate world which right. has the complexity of the world that we live in. Yeah. That, you know, he tries and he tries and he tries, but ultimately he realizes that we need to work with the world we have rather than try and create a new world, be that online or however else it manifested. And I think that. Ray and Dorothy echo that to a certain degree, but less sure. successfully. I found them by far the hardest to read. Um, I just wasn't I wasn't super interested in it. Neile, I think I have more sympathy for, and I thought was a more kind of well sculpted character. And his, you know, at the at the very end of the book, he is in the audience when um, yeah, Patricia tries. Patricia to, uh, eats her little cocktail and kicks exactly. the kicks the bucket uh well or doesn't depends on yeah the or yeah branching yeah. narrative that we tend to go for yeah um yeah i yeah so i do think i think we're we're, we're probably on the same page there i i wonder if there's something that i'm i missed in the the ray and dorothy section but really i found it hard work to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to get through that um, yeah the the one thing that I would add as something of value to to that, I I think you know there there is a message in this in this book, you know, thematically, and when they let the yard go wild, and you know, there's yeah. all of this this pressure to to cut the lawn and trim things back, um, you know that that is a a very like real thing that most people. Um, would encounter in in the sense like we can't we, we have created this society where we can't just let nature run wild you know even in our own yards um, and so there there is there is something about like our societal like oppression of something even as small as as somebody's you know front and backyard in a mm -hmm. house that they own or pay for or, you know whatever. Um, so I did get a little bit from from that that piece of it um, and their sort of pull then, um, you know, to Ray looking out the window and really like observing nature um, as opposed to, you know, being fixated on all these other distractions that they had in their in their relationship. Um, so there was a little something something there. But, yeah, I think when you look at the novel as a whole, I it didn't really yeah. add a lot, you know? You wonder why it wasn't kind of edited out or pruned out, as it were. Right. Um, I, I think with, like, and this is just a very personal thing, but ever since I read The Diving Bell and the Butterfly many years ago, one of my biggest fears is, like, locked-in syndrome, which <laughs> Douglas is, I'm sorry, Ray is sort of um, experiencing. And so I think yeah. I just, I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, this is, absolutely horrible and I don't want to 
I want to think about it or read about it. So like that certainly kept me away from that character a little bit too. Um, yeah, that's that's fair. In the rest of the story, was there was there anyone you were drawn to more than more than others? Um, I was really drawn to Patricia. Um, I I really I really enjoyed her um her character, but also just her work and how she went about it. I th- I thought her arc was was really wonderful. You know, being this this woman who through sort of wonder you know creates this career and then she's sabotaged essentially um by her colleagues and then um just goes off and is just in nature and and yeah doing her own thing and then she's like sort of redeemed in the background and then you know has this this redemption arc um through the end and yeah, I th- I really connected with with her story and and more so with um the descriptions in her chapters of nature and the interconnectivity of forests yeah. and things. That that was the thing that really hooked me hard with this book. I thought that it, in her sections in particular there's this mix of fact and fiction. Um, I, I think I read that she's like an analogue of um, Suzanne Simard, who yep. wrote The Hidden Life of Trees, which I actually yes. have and have read. And there's a couple of books that I think are kind of um, analogues of the book that she's written in the text um, that are telling that story of trees and how, they, how they're such a big part of the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed that kind of blend of facts and fiction too. You know, it feels for a book that I think can get kind of large in scope and complexity and ranks up there with like Midnight's Children and A Hundred Years of Solitude for those kind mm-hmm. of complex interweaving narratives. Yep. Um, I thought that there is a groundedness to it when they're mm-hmm. talking about the science of things. It it does get quite... Um, what would you call it? it? It gets a little floaty, maybe, when they're talking about some of the tree stuff. Um, yes. Especially when, you know, uh, is it Olivia who's sort of speaking to the spirits of the trees, that kind of stuff? Yes, yes. I think that's, that's interesting. Um, one of but I the think... Th- Sorry. I was going to say, I, th- I think that's why Patricia is so important, because you have these these idealists um, in sort of the, I, I would just call them eco-terrorists, um, and Patricia then sort of grounds this, um, this idea of trees and not just um, sort of tree hugging and and uh you know whatever other terminology people want to throw at, at the activities of olivia and douglas and and that crew um but then there's there's a very clear like scientific reason um for the things that they're doing even if they themselves don't really exhibit that knowledge um in a scientific book, way haven't they her book's one of the books up in the tree mm-hmm. oh yeah right i forgot about that so i i, I think that with the uh, and in, in quotes, uh, eco-terrorism, um, I think the thing is that they're, they've seen the limit of peaceful protest. And the book yes. is pretty pro-burning <laughs> equipment. Yeah, I mean, I know that a horrible tragedy happens and um, Olivia dies and it, it, it affects the rest of the book. Um, right. Certainly the course of those characters' lives. But I think that we can... Well, uh, I felt that Richard Powers, the author, has a sense of frustration with the limitations of peaceful protest in terms of protecting forests, and that is a frustration that I myself feel too. Like, there's only so many trees you can climb up. There's only so much, like, chaining yourself around a tree. It is inevitable that these things fall to big business. And the yep. the part where, is it Douglas who's planting the trees and he realises yeah. that yeah. by planting the trees he's actually allowing them to cut down more trees? Right. I mean, yep. that is fucking brutal. Uh, and, you know, that is how those logging companies work. You replace, like, a beautiful um, ancient woodland with just a monoculture of 
straight shitty pine trees and we think right. that they're the same thing because one's a cash crop and the other's just a, a sort of ecological nothingness like a, in the same way that grass is just a green desert you know like right we do not look after our environment properly and we do not allow these complex systems to kick in and i feel that's why i think the book's slightly uh, pessimistic at the end slightly misanthropic is because the sense i got from the book was that they in the end trees will probably in some form or another still exist when right. people stop existing and people will stop existing because they are unable to manage their relationship with the environment around them uh, without doing fucking horrific things. Yeah. And I think that like that systemic problem um, is, is so pervasive across, I mean, pick your, pick your cause, right? Whether it's, um, you know, economic disparity or, uh, race relations or gender or whatever it is like there are systemic things in place in governments across the world where there's sort of this like bait and switch like you know Douglas planting these trees allowing corporations to continue to to destroy things and so I also I found I found that part um, kind of sickening as well um, because I was I was curious like you know he was just seemingly so happy and proud planting these trees. And I knew in the back of my head that like, well, they're just planting these trees to cut them down again. So like he's not seeing the full picture here. And so I was wondering if, if that was ever going to come about and I was, I was glad and, and sad when it did. But um, yeah, I, I, I think the, the stance that like, you know, you can, you can only sort of be so peaceful um, or even they went to pretty extreme measures to be peaceful. And still like when, when he got uh, like bear sprayed in the, in the genitals, you know, up the, up the pine tree. I mean, he was, yes, breaking the law and trespassing and, and all of this kind of stuff. But at that point it was, it was still peaceful yet. The, the systems that are in place, um, to to keep people in check and keep the government or keep the uh, corporations in check, still oppressed you know people um, trying to do the right thing in a way that these protesters weren't allowed to do. And I I get frustrated. I just watched an episode of um, the problem with John Oliver. Um, I don't know if you've watched that. Um, it's on Apple TV, and it was uh, it was about like the like economic disparity in in america and why the like working class essentially um you know is struggling um mm -hmm. why they vote for politicians who uh have policies that are in direct opposition to you know their um their best interest why there is uh socialism for corporations but not for individuals in america and so i i was watching that and i was thinking about all these themes kind of in this book too um that yeah the government was there to to protect the company not the people not to hear even the media wasn't a, wasn't a huge part of that movement no no there's a bit where they want the media there to film what's happening but then mm -hmm. obviously i think the police come over quite badly in the book like the, yeah. the police are never there to do anything other than you know mace people and handcuff them and that kind of yeah. thing. I, I take your point on like this um on the symptomatic kind of pressures of um economy and, and race relations and stuff like that. But I do think that ecology and obviously I am massively biased on this because this is my area, but yeah. I think ecology <laughs> is like literally the world that we live in. Um, yeah. And if we fuck all of our ecological systems, we fuck ourselves. We, and you know, I, I do think the book's trying to sort of hammer that home. W one of the things I'm interested in, which I think the book does well. So uh, Christina actually wrote about this. So there's um, Clipfy, which is like, or Cli-Fi, which is like okay. sci-fi, but climate fiction. Ah, uh, um, yeah. Which yeah, is yeah. like a, a sort of sub genre, I suppose. With 
climate change and art. Christina wrote this um, essay called How Poetry Can Help Us Understand the Urgency of the Climate Crisis. And one of okay. the big points in there is about how um, poetry, art in general, can create empathy mm-hmm. um, between like, the, the reader or the viewer or the user of that art and the sort of <laughs> complex and ultimately sort of characterless world around us, you know? So you yeah. can make people care about the world, which they they do abstractly, but if you can make them feel like genuine empathy towards rivers or trees or plants right. or animals, then it's a stepping stone towards them understanding like the bigger picture. And that's mm-hmm. what I think the book does. Like it, it's large and complex and it points out that it's, this is a difficult subject but I do think that you walk away from this book feeling the importance of trees to the world right like yeah absolutely I mean it, it, there is a there's an immersion I think in this in this book of um like being in trees one of the things that like the the school that I work at um, feels very strongly about is like being in nature and so we do these we do these hikes I just got back um, you know from northern Italy doing a hike in the Alps with a bunch of students for four days and I think that act of like engaging and being with somebody whether that is hiking or whether that is reading a, a book like this or poetry um, it does create in you that sense of of empathy or understanding at the very least um and engagement and it makes you makes you think about your your place and things i mean i woke up at 5 30 um the other morning before before everybody got up and i just sat outside in my sleeping bag and like <laughs> almost zero degree uh temperature and i just i just watched things i just watched the bats fly around and the birds wake up and um you know, those those things for me create um, an overwhelming sense of like insignificance. And yes, totally. you know, we we try so much to sort of dominate, um, you know, our our terrain. Um, but in reality, when you're in these moments, um, you know, still the, the the weather and the the forests and the mountains and the oceans, they are still having their way with things. And I think we need to to recognize and, and try to find ways to to understand our place among all of this without the the constant domination and like sort of engineering of, of nature that has gotten us into this climate crisis that we're we're gonna deal with now for who knows until maybe human extinction. One hundred percent, and it's 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 infuriating. Like in the in the book, they talk a lot about uh, old growth forests, and I haven't heard yep. the term before. So in the UK, we call them ancient woodlands, which is the yeah is the same same term, you know, same thing, just different terminology. So I had a look up um, for locations of remaining tracks of old growth forest, and there's a, a two thousand and six Greenpeace um, sort of document that. That looks at it and you know so they say like 35 percent uh, in south america the amazon vein forest mainly located in brazil for example that's a huge chunk of it but then when mm-hmm. you get down to like there's less than three percent in europe uh eight percent in africa that kind of thing obviously that's from 2006 and at the very bottom it says as of 2001 significantly less old growth forests remain you've got to wonder where we're at on the scale of those things and it's it's fucking terrifying and i hope that a book like this will help to make people just consider that a little bit more i do think we've come a long way just in the last 20 years in terms of ecological awareness yeah um you know there are attempts at like rewilding and reintroduction, reintroduction, sorry, of um, yeah, of, of like native fauna and uh, native like animals too. But one of the things that I feel like in the book and potentially like just in the real world is that is this all just too little, too late? Is it a band aid on a counter? Yeah, 
I think it was last this last summer we had a we had a forest fire here um, on our mountain, and um, from like that conversation with some of the science teachers and uh, the person who runs our outdoor program here, um, I found out that there like less than one percent of um, forests in Switzerland are um, are older than two hundred and fifty years, mm. and so there's also an astonishingly um, small amount of a country that I consider to be quite wild still, um, you know, that, that has these, these old, these old growth forests or virgin forests. However, you know, we want to, we want to call these, but you know, the other, the other part of that, and we really haven't talked about it is like the, the extinction of animals too, as part of all of this. And, you know, so things like uh, there are no bears um, in our part of Switzerland anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Wolves were hunted to um, extinction. Um, and, you know, those things like um, like native um, fauna or flora have been reintroduced um, in small numbers. But th- things have changed so much that, you know, they who knows what the next hundred years will look like. I mean, I don't have to worry about bears and wolves when I go hiking on our mountain. And uh, a few hundred years ago, I should have, right? I mean, just, it's well, incredible. I think, too, that, like, bears and wolves are the big things. We can see those. But the real yeah. fucking tragedy at the moment is the wiping out of biodiversity in terms of, like, insect life, you know? Sure. Using things like... So having these monoculture crops, using glyphosate all the time, using herbicides, using pesticides, um, we're killing insects at this unbelievable rate, and we're not paying attention to how vital those insects are mm-hmm. for you know the on on growing ecology of the planet kind of thing. It is touched on in the book a little bit. I think when Patricia moves into her seed collecting. Yeah, stage where she has like um, a seed vault mm-hmm. uh, going. She does talk about how perhaps in the future, even with the seeds, it won't mean anything because yep. if the insect scaffolding, which helps with you know the propagation of these things, the propagation of these trees disappears, then we're fucked anyway. So right, right. You can have a seed. You can grow a tree, maybe. But you'll never be able to grow a forest, a, a family like a forest, because yep. there's nothing, there's nothing left to move the the move the seeds around. There's nothing left to pollinate. There's nothing left to do any of the good stuff that we need. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I, I think it's a pretty dire situation. And without you know wanting to go completely off the deep end. Um, yeah, my only real hope is that books like this wake people up because things are bad and getting worse. And as you said, there is there's plenty of other problems that people focus on that are social things. Yeah, but this is the ground beneath our feet. This is the place where we grow our food. Right. This is kind of everything, and there's no race equality. There's no bring down the patriarchy <laughs> if we're all fucking dead i mean yeah. there is i suppose in the last dying breaths we can fight it out <laughs> but why not let's like you know why not let's figure out the uh the basics of keeping the planet afloat yeah and so i i think this is the this is the problem like of our of our time and for the human history to come um you know this is this is the thing that we're going to have to grasp with and the thing that we haven't talked about really at all with this book is that the the main plot arc is are are these these characters that come together for you know um for ecological reasons and they they are doing things to try to stop um these companies and so yeah maybe we should talk a little bit about um about Nicholas and Adam and uh, Dougie and Mimi and Olivia is the, is the other one, right? And I miss anybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, because this is where this is where the main action is in this whole thing, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I suppose so. 
I think it's interesting that they're drawn together through these sort of magical realism ways, you know, like Olivia yep. sort of sees or hears the spirits of the forest. Uh, she dies and is brought back. I mean, that's yeah. quite dramatic. Um, and then the the way that the, you know, like Mimi is a, a really interesting character and the way that she's brought into the story... Um, you know, the, the, I think it's a pine is chopped down outside her office. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of radicalizes her. Um, and the way that they they meet one another, you know, they're drawn in. Like, um, is it, it's Nicholas who's drawn in by Olivia, isn't it? Like, she stops Yeah, Olivia shows up at his, at his farm because of That's the sign right. on the highway. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously, Douglas meets... Um, Mimi, when the pine is cut down and yep. he's uh, he's protesting, um, I th- and then so Adam, me, who's I, the asshole, shows Adam's up because he's studying he's, these yeah. people. He's a psychologist. He's kind of an outsider, isn't he? And, he is. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting to see how he continues to be outside of the group, but. What I found the most interesting was how the group very, very quickly radicalized. They go from doing these things where they're training themselves around trees, they're living up in the canopy of the tree, they're trying to engage with the mechanisms of society in order to stop these things, and then they realize that it doesn't work. And the, yeah. the, the most effective they seem to be is when they're setting fire to the equipment and blowing things up. Yeah, and, and well, certainly you the have happiest to... they are. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you, you again. You just have to wonder, like you know, they they failed at everything that they they tried to do peacefully, right? Um, they go up in what did they call the what was the big tree yeah, called? I can't remember the name. Uh, but that's a starts book. with an M, I think. Uh, I've got a book know. here. But so they, you know, they climb up in this tree and they live there for for months on end um, to try to to save it. And slowly, you know, this deforestation is is happening, you know, in their purview. And then it comes to them and they lose the tree. And um, all of this time, all of this effort really is is for naught. And then I think that act certainly radicalizes. I Olivia and um and Nicholas yeah uh, well and Adam because because he, he's there um when that occurs too right yeah he climbs the tree with it he's like basically yeah. in fact Adam is like the uh forebringer of doom isn't he because he basically yep. climbs the tree is there for a day or two and then it's taken down yeah he he is the the harbinger of doom like he's the he's there when the tree falls you're right he is the reason essentially that um, that everything goes sideways with Olivia, although she, you know she might not have lived anyway, but he didn't go get help, um, and he wants to cover up the crime um, or the yeah, yeah. the death. Um, I didn't really feel like. Did you feel like that was his fault? I felt like him not going to get help didn't really affect things there. But no, but it it complicated it complicated everything, right? Like. Um, then instead of doing the right thing, despite them doing a, a very wrong thing in that moment, um, they would have absolved themselves of some guilt, um, and culpability in her death if they had, if he had gone for help. Um, you know, they still would have all ended up in jail and, you know, maybe manslaughter or whatever, you know would have been thrown at them but yeah by him not doing that then now they're all sort of forced into like seclusion and isolation as characters yeah i don't know if i agree because i mean ultimately his you know he he gets caught in the end and he gives up one person but he keeps two other people free true true um and I think like one of the bits in the book that I found, again, like I, I really did, I found this like a Herculean read. Like I really felt kind of ground <laughs> down by trying to read this book. So yeah, um, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but with uh, Olivia at the end, so she thought she had these like spirits guiding her, mm-hmm. and am I correct that she she says that the tree isn't going to come down? She believes that they've told her that the tree's not going to come down. Um, I don't remember. I remember her saying that this like that's not how like she dies or or they how yeah, this ends like... sort of thing um okay. i don't remember that was so like deeply in the middle of of stuff but you could you could absolutely be correct yeah i i felt like her i felt like she didn't expect her own death basically that she thought yeah that, you know in her mind these spirits of the forest were telling her what to do and tracking her in the right direction and mm-hmm. she didn't think she was going to die there. Yeah. I suppose for me, what with Adam, or Maple, or whatever we're going to call him, I like the fact that yeah. they all ended up with different names, too, with their, like, forest names. Right, um, right. Because, you know, uh, Maidenhair is a fantastic name. Yes, it is. Um, but, yeah, with Adam, I think he... Sure, he doesn't want to get caught, but I assume that they all know what the risks are when they're doing these, like, bombing missions. Yeah, I might prefer my corpse to be chucked in there, too. <laughs> and for sure. everyone to stay free, that would have been... You would assume they would have talked about something something about it ahead of time, right? Right, yeah, for sure. But I, I also think that there there is there is a bit of a lack of, like planning in a sense i mean they they the act of you know of um pulling off these these terrorist um actions was obviously well planned and they got better at it and as it went on but i was thinking about the the slogans that um that nicholas um put on things right so i think on one of them it might have been the the place where Olivia died um they put like control kills connection heals and then yeah. there was like yeah. no uh no to the suicide economy maybe that was the one they they put there but these are not like um I I didn't find these these statements to be very impactful um and I don't know what I would what I would put instead um I haven't thought that much about it, but when I read those, I was kind of like, "Well, these are dumb." Did you did you have a reaction to to those at all? Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. I thought they were dumb, but I certainly I thought they were like hippie sloganeering, you know. Yeah, which is yeah. Again, it's kind of it's of the of the time that it's at. Okay, so let's. Let's change gears a little bit, and there's a couple more things I want to make sure that that we have um, time to get to. Um, and I want to I want to dig in about the the seeds section, the mm-hmm. the very the very end. So to kind of summarize things, um, Nile leaves his his company and he starts um, trying to work with AI um, to learn about like biomes or whatever. Um, Adam goes to jail. Um, Mimi becomes a therapist, I guess, in the, in the previous, previous section. And she just stares nakedly, uh, at people, which is, uh, I thought I would hate that kind of thing, but I absolutely loved that part. Yeah. I, it was interesting to me too, how it's, it's sort of like introduced that she was now like doing some kind of therapy but then it wasn't clear what it was until she has that scene with the with the woman where they just stare at each other uncomfortably for hours. Yeah. Would like would you ever go to a therapist like that? I don't know. I think in in real life you wouldn't have the bit where they you see their internal <laughs> thoughts, would you? So no, probably not. I would probably just sit there feeling incredibly awkward. So Yeah. Um no would be my answer. But uh, I I really enjoyed that part of the book because it yeah. felt like you know Mimi had Mimi went on a journey, man. Like, she really did. She probably changed 
the most of any character. Adam probably being uh, close behind her, I guess, because even at the end, so he gives up. He gives up Dougie, right? Is that the or did, does Dougie give him up? No. Well, whatever. Uh, they both end up in jail. Adam gets the, caught and he gives up. Dougie uh, Douglas, yeah, because he's yeah, because he's over at the what would have been the god damn it what were the wall street protests um occupy wall street um that was the the implication so they um, they go to jail yeah nicholas has sort of disappeared hasn't he and he's become this sort of secret graffiti master type thing yeah he's sort of the like eco banksy sort of guy yeah uh ray has another stroke and dies after they let the yard go wild Mm-hmm. And then um, the novel ends with Nick making the the giant sculpture um, in the in the forest that just says "still" um, yeah. that apparently you could see from space. So um, you have this really dramatic like arc. You know, you have these these characters, and I'm talking mainly about the um, about the main five or whatever. Um, where they go through and they try to do something, they fail, they, they scatter, they go about their, their lives. Um, and then everything at the end is, it, I mean, it's a very literary ending to a novel, right? Where there's, yeah. everybody's just kind of in the shit. Um, yeah. And yeah, I don't, I don't know how, how I felt about things ending that way. I mean, of course it felt realistic in some way um, that it, inevitable that things would would end the way that they did but in a novel so full of things that i was taking away i felt really drawn away from the the trees and the forest aspect Mm -hmm. and i was just completely supplanted then in sort of how these these characters had landed after this did you have an impression about the about the ending yeah, so this is where, you know, I've said it quite a bit. Like, I think, you know, Patricia seeing that the biggest impact that she could have, the biggest statement she could make was to kill herself on stage. Yeah, oh yeah, I forgot that part. But... Um, and the fact that, you know, everything has sort of unraveled. It's a messy ending. It's a human ending. And the to me, this is the part where I you know as I've said before it's misanthropic we we see mm-hmm. this ending because we're uh human species centric you know we're human centric um we separate ourselves from nature and we think that we're not a part of it but we are really yeah and so I think that this messy ending is saying like we for all of this build-up for all of what's happened, nothing has really happened, you know? Right. And that they, The impact that they've made is so limited. They will not be there in the end, but the trees will be there. And even the message that uh, Nicholas has made, you know, that can be seen from space, yep. is made out of trees. Like right. Our impact, our view, is limited, small, ant-like. And the trees will continue on after us that's my reading of the ending so i did wonder if you would have because uh, you know i'm a brit you are yeah uh, a misplaced but still an american <laughs> so are always gonna have a more positive bent i think than me where i'm like it's all doom kill everything yeah um so i wondered how you would read that ending comparatively no, I I think I think I walked away with with the same feeling that that there is an inevitability to our doom, <laughs> yeah. Because we've we've so um, I almost I almost want to say mismanaged, but we've tried to manage nature, hmm. and um, and I do think in in the real world that um, that what will likely happen is that you know society will will fail there will be food shortages and uh you know adverse weather and the human population will be extremely adversely affected by these things but um 
even if it brings about human extinction, I, nature will go on in some capacity, right? Not yeah. as it exists today, um, but as it existed for millions and billions of years, you know, before before we shoot, we showed up and started messing with things. And so, you know, we are in a very finite, you know, pinpoint uh, or, you know, pinprick point in time um, of existence. And um, in some way, it, it doesn't matter what we do um, because what will be will be. And that's that's kind of how I how I felt when I when I left this novel. But it also made me. Um, I cared a lot more about trees um, at, at the end of it, um, yeah. and I cared a lot more about that that interconnectivity of of things in a way that um, that I I hadn't before. Not not that I'm you know I don't know I I looked at at the things outside of my window much differently after after reading this novel for sure. Um, I but, think the, the, the novel kind of touches on like a gayer hypothesis a little bit, you know, this yeah, sort of yeah. self-regulating complex system. Now, I'm not, I don't buy into the gayer hypothesis totally, but I do think that we have biological systems that we have put out of whack. And right. the end of the book says to me that we have put them so far out of whack that there's no coming back. And I think I probably subscribe to that now do i think that means the like end of humankind no i think that's probably a little bit like um you know it's probably a little over dramatic but i do think that we're going to need to realign how we do these things and i think that the impact on billions of people is going to be we're already beginning to see it you know with floods yeah. and wildfires and uh, hurricanes changes and yep. and the difficulty of growing food and you know all of these factors um that the the book does sort of touch on um but yeah as you say uh, it does make you kind of look out your window look at your garden look at the trees around you and appreciate them that little bit more which is um is all we could really hope for from from a book like this yeah i think so this this book got into my subconscious so much that i had a i had a dream after i finished reading it um <laughs> and this is this is a trip i i want to i want to try to write a story about this but um you're familiar with the term like the concept of harmonic resonance yes so in my dream trees started to reach harmonic resonance and shatter like splinters and um <laughs> and then i woke up in the morning and i was like what the fuck did i just dream and then i sat there thinking about it i was like well, what if like all these trees just started you know to to explode across the world um and it was unexplained and i, I think so in my dream um you know that's something that that happens that happened in real time that i could observe the reality is like you and i will be dead and gone long before any of the real serious impacts um to humankind and the planet really take hold if we continue on this course and so it's it's hard i think for us to to conceptualize and to take action against something that will outlive us and that's yeah it was a weird it was a super weird dream and and a way that my my brain was trying to sort of i think make a connection to you know how it could happen and i could see it all and feel it all you know what i mean <laughs> i do i do uh, this book definitely um yeah made for some vivid dreams for me too well, why do you think so uh, i said a, a couple of times that i found this like very very hard work to read yes i think so I, I can point out kind of a couple of things that I think made it difficult for me. I'd love to hear your input too. Okay. So for, for me, I think one, especially in the short story part, and especially in Roots, I was reading mm -hmm. them and I was just thinking, fucking hell, this is well written. This is a beautiful story. Like Yes. And I really needed to sort of sit and sit with that story mm -hmm. um, and like absorb it. And I found, like, I couldn't digest giant chunks of the book, you know? 
uh, I had to kind of wait a little bit until I'd turn them over because there is th- this is nutrient dense with concepts and, and yes. interests. I, I also think that you know this was this is like a subject matter that I'm really interested in. I've read a lot mm-hmm. of books about trees. I'm interested in trees. I'm interested in ecology. I'm interested in plants. You know. So I think, again, there were some concepts in there that I was really just just drawn in by. Um, I also think, like, it is a dense and complex book. You know, I compared it to to Midnight's Children. I do think that that's a relatively accurate comparison because it's not easy to just dip in and out of. You couldn't read this in one sitting. No way. No. Um, And... There is an element of having to hold an awful lot of plot points in your mind um, as you move forward, you know. Uh, In some ways, it was a pleasure that Olivia died, so I didn't have to think about her anymore. (laughs) (laughs) One less. One less. One down. Uh, No, I mean, yeah, it is. It's just a a complex system. Uh, And, you know, I suppose in some ways that's what Neil A's story is is commenting on is that there's these levels of complexity that we just we cannot approach but yeah uh, how about you what did you what why do you think you found it harder to read yeah i think i think i agree that the the imagery and like the language and the concepts of of this book are just are so rich that you you can't plow through it you can't just you know go through even a single paragraph um, without being caught by something. So there was sort of that um, that act of um, kind of savoring for me as I was going through. Um, I also think that, that Powers takes his time to develop a lot of um, interest. And it took me a few hundred pages before I really felt... Um, actually, it took me a few hundred pages after the first section um to really become invested then in in the story and -hmm. i think part of that is some of his yeah just tangents on on certain things um i mean he's so detailed in the in the lives of these people um that sometimes we we lose the the plot it felt sort of like you know things were just just sort of humming along and then all of a sudden all the air was let out and then Mm -hmm. something would happen and, and it would pick back up again. And so I found myself also actively um, setting this book down because I, I wasn't getting, I wasn't staying hooked um, to the story. And yeah, I, this book took me, I think four whole weeks to read and I've talked to several colleagues um, who have read this book and it was it was a similar slog for them um and i i think it's just that that kind of novel i mean 100 years of solitude was was the last book that i can i can think of that i read that i felt like i had to make an effort and mm-hmm. this book requires effort um yeah. to read yeah. and i'm a lazy um almost almost middle-aged man um and uh i have a lot of things going on in my life so um effort in reading at this age and this point uh is not something that i'm always willing to do so there was definitely a a me aspect (laughs) to to not reading this quickly as well but i don't think it's a a book to be approached lightly you know you need to invest time in this book without a doubt yeah um, so with that being said, are we, are we ready to toss this somewhere? Are, yeah, are we ready to shelve it or chunk it? <laughs> um, you want to go first? No, you go first, brother. <laughs> oh, shit. See, I, I don't know what to do with this book. Um, because on one hand, I would recommend it to everybody, um, and on the other hand, I would recommend it to nobody. <laughs> and, uh, and that, that's because of, you know, how, how much effort I think it takes, it takes to read. Um, that being said, I think, I think this book does belong for me. My gut says middle shelf. Um, 
because of how difficult it is and some of the some of the choices I think he makes with length and plot um I I really I think if if Neelay weren't there and uh Ray and Dorothy weren't there then I think this book would have been much more streamlined I think it would be an easy top shelf pick but just some of these these tangential elements that that slogged it down for me um yeah, I, I think I think it's a, a middle shelf book for me. I get why it won a Pulitzer, but I don't know if I'll go back and read this one again. You know, hundred percent. Yeah, I will never read this book again, um, <laughs> just because it was like it was like going fucking ten rounds with Tyson. It was unbelievable. Um, yeah, but I did love it, and I think that there's it, it is so borderline. There's another part of me that thinks that in line with the like ethos of the book, mm-hmm. in order to prevent more trees being cut down to make books, we should put this into back into the world to be recycled in a second-hand Ooh. bookshop. Ooh. Um, but for for our ranking system, I think it's it's probably. Is probably still top shelf. Okay. I mean, this is a book that I'm going to be thinking about for years, you know? Okay. And I think it's probably had an influence on me already. And I think, like, not everything you read needs to be uh, just enjoyable, you know? Like, I, I, yep. I found this really hard work. It's the first time in years I've read a book that I found hard work. You yeah. Know? Yep, I've re- I read a lot. I've read a lot of different stuff. I read around a lot. Like this was a slog, but f- for the payoff, it was worth it. Okay. So, top shelf, but it's not staying on my shelf. It's going out into the world to be recycled. That's my plan. Excellent. So one thing I will add uh, to this is that I read that Netflix picked this up. Yes, I saw this. And thing. the Game of Thrones uh directors uh was it DB DB Weiss and Brynhoff is that the other one? Oh, I didn't see that they were taking it. They're yep. the ones who are going to do it, is that? And Wolverine himself, Hugh Jackman, uh is also involved. This is a fucking roller coaster. <laughs> you're like, oh wow, brilliant! There's a TV show. Oh no, yeah. those guys are involved, and then Hugh Jackman's involved. I'm back in. Yeah. So I will definitely, I will definitely take a peek at that um, if and when um, Netflix does that. Um, but I, similar to your summary at the beginning of the episode, I have no idea how you turn this book <laughs> into a TV adaptation in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah, it's a toughie. Yeah, I mean, even if you could get the the main plot, uh, you know, captured for a TV show, I really wonder if you're going to capture the the essence of this of this novel. No, I think that they're going to make it more hopeful because people don't want bleakness in their lives. This is this is true. <laughs> um, okay, but next episode we're gonna we're gonna be a bit bleak. Um, yeah, a little, a touch of bleakness. Yeah, so it's uh, it's spooky season. We did uh, at the Mountains of Madness, and that was uh, that was a good like kind of Halloweeny uh, type thing. Um, but I haven't had a lot of horror experience, although I guess I don't know if this is thriller or horror, whatever, whatever it is. Um, but we're gonna read the Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. So that'll be a different. Uh, <laughs> a turn from this for sure um yeah yeah kind of the spirit of halloween uh yeah sounds good man looking forward to that one i i i've i've never read any uh shirley jackson but i've read of her and you know she seems to be very very well regarded in this particular genre and apart from reading some uh what were those oh, goosebumps i used to read oh the yeah goosebumps books when i was a kid i have not read a lot of horror books so those are those were fantastic. I wonder if they still if they still make those. We don't have any in our library here. 
got to get those goosebumps in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to have to ask some of my my students if they have ever read those. And then the what was the other one that was kind of similar the Animorphs? Do you ever read those? Nah, nah, I've never got any of that. It was kind of yeah, it was sort of like your you choose your own adventure, but it was like it was weird because they also had um like the characters were like a you know, half half boy, half cheetah kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> was, yeah, of course. No, how did I not get that? The animal. It was fucking You know what? That would be a really fun episode actually if we could both go find like one of these choose your own adventure books and then we read it once. We come up with completely different endings and stuff. Compare notes. We should 100% do that. I am absolutely obsessed with branching narrative at the moment, and I'm reading okay, about, like, okay. the mechanics of making branching narrative for games and for books, and Choose Your Own Adventure is a great big part of that, so I'm 100% up for this. Okay, let's let's make that a, a future episode. We can, we can do some research, and uh, maybe we can even ask Twitter for suggestions, let's see if it. any listeners have suggestions. So... If you have an idea for a choose-your-own-adventure book that we could do on this podcast, whether it's junior fiction, YA, or if somebody uh, has made the foray into adult fiction with with this style, then uh, we're we're down for for anything. So hit us up on Twitter at Better Bookshelf. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode. Next episode will be The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take it easy.